You are now listening to Music Legends with your host, Chili Will. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Music Legends. I'm your host, Chili Willie, a.k.a. the Grammy-nominated Triangle Player. We're back on a mission to find out what exactly makes Miles Davis so cool or uncool. And, of course, if you haven't listened to the last couple episodes, you're definitely going to want to do that. Now, if you've listened to the last few episodes, you're probably wondering what exactly makes Miles Davis so cool anyway. You might even be thinking he's quite the opposite of cool. But buckle up. Because the story is far from over, and in the next few episodes, we're going to deconstruct what exactly makes cool cool. Specifically, how a little bit of mystery can make something or someone ten times more cool. And a bit of jealousy, well, that doesn't make anything or anybody cool. It just makes him flat out cold. And Miles Davis, well, he came pretty close to the Arctic. Days went by, weeks went by, even years went by. That quiet car ride stuck like fresh paint on a canvas in Francis Davis's mind. It was like it happened yesterday, but it didn't. The last time she entered a theater to do any acting or any dancing of any kind was in 1961. The year was now 1963, and Francis was still somewhat performing, now in the kitchen instead of the theater. After that fateful day back in 1961, she became a full-time stay-at-home mom. Francis and Miles now had a young son, Jean-Pierre. She loved her son with all her heart, but there'd be times when he'd call for her, and there'd be no answer. She would disappear for an hour or so, only to re-emerge with the sniffles and a crumpled up wet tissue in hand. She had escaped to the attic to visit what could be, but what is now just a box with her ballet slippers. Her son said years later, quote, she always seemed to be holding a certain feeling about what she could have been doing, unquote. Her relationship with Miles had developed, but at its core was flawed. Miles was constantly at the studio or out on tour with his band playing shows. The time Miles spent at home was a sporadic mess scattered randomly across the floor of each month. Home for a day or two, then gone. Scattered just like the glass vases he'd break as he stumbled across the living room, wielding a kitchen knife and ready to use it to fend for his life from the nightly hallucinations of home intruders. The nightly hallucinations came from a kind of potion, a strange brew, to put it mildly. The ingredients? Alcohol, cocaine, and pain, the mother of all combos. And this potion, so he thought, was the cure. His joints ached and screamed all day from sickle cell anemia, and standing in an awkward posture, blowing hard into his horn, well, that wasn't helping, not to mention the start of what would soon become a faulty hip. The pain crept into his body, that's for sure, but any time it came even remotely close to his soul, <coughs> he snorted and guzzled down some more of his special potion. The irony is, the secret ingredient, pain, was already there. Now, 
At this point, if you know anything about cocaine or alcohol, you might have already guessed it. Let the spoiler alarm sound. The special potion only ended up causing more pain in the long run. But in the moment, the mere presence of alcohol and cocaine at the same time gave the illusion of absolute euphoria. Now, this kind of euphoria was nothing like his old pal, heroin, either. This was different. Not only would the potion make his pain disappear, this potion, when it took hold of his body, made him much stronger, more powerful, and mentally aware. Well, paranoid, but nonetheless aware. At least, so he thought. Unfortunately, all of it was just smoke and mirrors, a kind of hallucination like the home intruders he so adamantly thought were real. He was like his wife, blinded, but not by love, by cocaine and alcohol. And Miles, in reality, was spiraling, spiraling into a depression so deep that to utter a simple silver lining or glass half full statement of any kind was just another form of escape. In a sense, he'd traded the control of his sight, mind, and body, all for the instantaneous relief of pain. Sure, there were times when sheer power of love broke through everything, and the Davis family was in harmony. And sure, Miles' magical potion was able to get him through some of the most enduring physical pain one can imagine. But, at the end of the day, nothing gold can stay, right, pony boy? Remember how I mentioned his soon-to-be faulty hip? By 1965, it wasn't so soon-to-be anymore. It was just a straight-up faulty hip. They operated on it, replaced it with some bone in his shin, but it didn't work. So they had to do it all over again. He was in the hospital for three months straight until he finally couldn't take it and decided to discharge himself due to boredom or maybe just a lack of his magical healing potion. For years, there was a vicious cycle. Miles would feel an immense amount of physical pain and get rid of it, feel strong and powerful, and then produce more pain to himself and everyone around him all starting with his wife. One night, Miles and Francis hit the nightlife for the Big Apple together. It was one of their favorite things to do as a couple hopping from club to club as celebrities and expressing their love for the high society they were part of. It started out as what seemed to be the perfect night. But even for celebrities, perfection doesn't exist. Nonetheless, this was the kind of night that neither Francis or Miles had in a very long time, because the average night for them was everything but perfection. But not tonight. Tonight was a night all about letting loose on the dance floor and champagne toasts so powerful that a few drops of the drink actually spilled upon impact. Happy and intoxicated, Miles and his wife had no care in the world. However, to a stranger's eye, Francis may not have looked so happy. 
Miles had left Francis out of sight and out of mind for a few minutes. And that was just long enough for her to escape to the dance floor. As if showing off her best moves wasn't impressive enough. She was doing it all with beautiful, sharp, six-inch stilettos shining at the bottom of her feet. For someone who hadn't danced in over four years, well, to say she still got it would be an understatement. Maybe the most impressive thing of it all was that she hadn't even slipped once. Those stilettos must have had some kind of special traction or something, because Frances had unconsciously created a small puddle of tears beneath her while she was dancing. Presumably, they were tears of joy, because she was finally getting to do what she'd been yearning for for the past four years. Ever since that fateful day, the last day she was on set for the West Side Story, she had only dreamed of dancing again. She'd asked Miles more than a few times if she could be in some other productions and even the West Side Story movie, but Miles was adamant a woman should be with her man. That's what he said every single time. So now, footloose on the dance floor with no miles in sight, she couldn't help but shed a few tears. Only problem was, someone else had noticed. He was tall, handsome, and had a swagger so thick it could cut through to a new dimension of celebrity. And that swagger it grew unimaginably thicker just a few years later when he produced one of the best-selling pop records of all time. The guy I'm talking about is Quincy Jones. And in that moment, he tapped into that dimension of cool, and walked over to the queen of cool herself, and possibly a damsel in dancing distress. With a soothing tone, he asked her, can I have a dance? Frances wiped her tears away and looked both ways over her shoulder for her husband before grabbing Quincy's hands and putting his swagger to the test on the dance floor. I don't think any other words were spoken between them. And if they were, they were drowned out by the beauty and the joy of the moment itself. It was one of those moments that seemed to last forever. And even when it was finally gone, you're still in it. Miles, he was about to have one of those moments too. It was when the celebrity couple got back from the jazz club that night, when Miles had finally reached his peak. Well, the peak of the power the magical potion had given him that day. In fact, he had reached a new peak. It was higher than any Mount Everest, and he was snorting all the snow on that mountain up to that peak. The cocaine had made his muscles clench, and the alcohol was dulling the consequences of his actions. Just when he started to feel like he could do anything, a droplet of the secret ingredient was added to the mix. Pain. Frances was smiling in the mirror as she took off her earrings. That smile that could light up an entire room. She was smiling partly because of the fantastic night she had, and partly because she couldn't remember the last time she saw herself smile. 
And that smile, it looked damn good on her too. Miles thought so too. You have fun tonight, darling. Francis turned around to look at Miles, still beaming with excitement from the night. I met Quincy Jones tonight, Miles. You know, it's true what they say, Miles. That man truly is an incredible dancer, Francis said. But Miles didn't respond. His ears, though. His ears perked up. Francis continued. You know, Miles, I bet if you watch that guy a little closer, even you might pick up a little something about dancing. Francis chuckled, hoping to spark some playful banter, which usually would have worked. But Miles still didn't respond. He sat there quietly on the bed. And now, it wasn't just his ears that perked up. The hair on the back of his neck stood straight up like eager new arrivals to boot camp standing at attention to their drill sergeant. Miles felt a cold chill tingle through his spine, and after all, he was at the peak of his high, even higher than Everest. Miles, are you even listening to me? Frances said as she looked away from her delicate earrings to Miles sitting slouched down on the bed staring at the floor. She rolled her eyes and continued taking off her earrings. It was just another night in the Davis household. Meanwhile, Miles felt the fear and the jealousy bubbling back up inside him. It found a way into every nook and cranny of his body. What happened next? Well, it's nothing less than infuriating. Frances, still looking in the mirror, switched her focus again to look at Miles, when she noticed him getting up. Startled, she turned around to face him. Miles, baby, I was only kidding around. And Miles was still silent but he used his fist to answer her. Frances lay on the ground with a weird metallic taste in her mouth and stars above her head. When she came to, she ran her finger across her lips and took a look at the glistening red. It wasn't lipstick, that's for sure. Miles was nowhere in sight. Powerless, she closed her eyes and somehow she was right back on that dance floor. As she lay there, a smile began to form on her face, despite the pain from the swollen lip. As she remembered how good it felt to let loose and be free on the dance floor, she felt liberated. Now, unfortunately, this wasn't the only time she'd been hit. But laying there, with a big old smile on her face, she decided it would be her last. A few months later, Frances's bags were on the floor. She left Miles for the final time. Miles later wrote in his autobiography, quote, Every time I hit her, I felt bad because a lot of it really wasn't her fault. A lot of it had to do with me being temperamental and jealous. Now, I like to be pretty unbiased and just focus on the story. But seriously, what the f***? Look, there's absolutely no excuse for domestic abuse. No matter how much pain or fear or drugs are involved in the situation, let's be honest, you gotta be a special kind of f***ed up to hit your wife. And, well, a special kind of f***ed up Miles Davis definitely was. So thankfully, Francis filed for divorce in 1966. In his autobiography, Miles later said the following about his brief marriage with Francis Davis. Quote, Francis. Francis was the best wife I ever had.
soon as his wife was gone, so was his fear of losing her. But the physical pain had followed. Later in 1966, Miles spent three months in the hospital due to a liver infection. Things were not looking good for him. His sales had declined to around 40,000 to 50,000 per album, compared to as many as 100,000 per release a few years before. For the press, every day was a field day, predicting his demise with every step he took. They exploited his underperforming albums and his numerous trips to the hospital. However, as Miles always did, he moved on. He avoided the pain that burned within him and kept living his life, tried his best to avoid churning the cogs of the personal time machine that is all of our brains. So what was his first move after a literal violent divorce? Well, he found himself a rebound, but this wasn't just any rebound, nope. He fell head over heels in love yet again. She was a familiar face in the growing New York City counterculture, a scene that Miles knew little about. But that was part of the reason he was enamored with her. When they were together, they would stay awake all night. After all, they were in the heart of the city that never sleeps. They would talk and let the depth of the conversation drown out the endless city sounds beneath the Manhattan apartment. She loved sharing her favorite newest bands with him and he was all ears. At this point, Miles was 44 years old, but he was all about the new. His past was starting to haunt him, and so he wanted nothing to do with it. He became very future forward, especially when it came to music. Miles's record collection had always been sparse. He'd never owned a single one of his own records. He didn't even care to entertain himself with the idea. He thought it was a waste of time. I can picture him saying something like, it's already been done, so why waste my time listening to it over and over again? He'd much rather be listening to the newest and most cutting-edge musicians. So when his new girlfriend, Betty, brought over all her favorite new albums, Miles was just as excited to hear it as she was when she dropped the needle down on that spitting black pancake of sound. Miles, like just about everyone else who's ever listened to Jimi Hendrix, was astonished the first time he heard him. But unlike a lot of us, Miles was angry. These kids are just messing around, taking a bunch of acid, he explained to his newlywed. That's right, it only took a few months for him and his new girlfriend Betty Mabry to get married. Anyway, Miles was mad, yet intrigued. And little did he know, that was the moment that began another paradigm shift in his life. But that moment passed, and the couple continued to flip through her record collection as the sun crept back up and brightened the night away. After a few months, his interest in the new rock scene grew exponentially. The same clubs that had once been filled with a crowd of jazz lovers were now either empty, boarded up, or filled with a very different crowd and a very different band. It was 1969 and jazz was dead. Even the word quintet had a fancy pants, pretentious sound to it that the hippie crowd hated, and they weren't exactly wrong. Even Miles was beginning to develop a hatred toward jazz, 
Well, what jazz used to be. But here's the thing. The only way a knife stays sharp is if it's never used. To Miles, jazz was that knife. As jazz became more and more popular, that knife was being whittled down from a sharp, innovative, and dangerous genre all the way to bland and boring background or elevator music. Something you might even hear while on hold with Verizon. All representatives are currently assisting other customers. Please stay on the line, and the next available representative will assist you. No pun intended here, but this situation is kind of a double-edged sword. Because when a genre becomes more popular, it starts to lose its danger. That very thing that made it so interesting in the first place. When a genre becomes more popular, it's in a way already on its path to becoming elevator music. And as if that's not bad enough, its listeners had changed. The listeners of jazz used to be cool black youth, and now they were middle-aged white men. To Miles, the word jazz was at this point the same as the n-word. The popularity of jazz among its new white audience was beginning to diminish the importance of a contribution to the world's music that was solely created and identified with blacks. George Ween, the promoter for the Newport Jazz Festival, was standing in front of Miles. The age of the quintet is gone, man. So is the trumpet. Give it up, he told Miles. Well, and good riddance, Miles thought. He started chugging down the white water rapids of a stream of thought. Miles, 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 Earth to Miles. Snapping out of it, his only response was, So, you gonna book me or what, George? George was booking more bands than quintets for the first time at the Newport Jazz Fest. Bands like Led Zeppelin, Sly and the Family Stone, just to name a few. However, George Ween always had a sweet spot for Miles. So Miles Davis was one of the few jazz acts who ended up still on the roster for 1969 at the Newport Jazz Fest. Miles was watching Sly Stone perform from backstage. He simply couldn't get enough. He was intrigued and flabbergasted at the same time. Thousands of people dancing and more importantly, paying to see these long-haired and mostly white kids playing the same exact riff that Miles would, but annihilating them with their electric guitars. But Sly and the Family Stone, they were one band in particular that Miles was actually beginning to like. The dwindling elements of jazz that once made it experimental and unpredictable were right here, in front of Miles' eyes. Their horn section alone made a bitter, cold, and pretentious Miles melt like a bucket of ice on a hot summer day. He was affected in such a way that made him utter his thoughts out loud to himself. Out of all these kids, 
This, this is the only real band here, he said as he watched Sly Stone interact with the crowd in such a way that literally took them higher, higher into some kind of groove-driven hypnosis as Sly screamed those words into the microphone. After just a few seconds, the whole crowd was screaming it back. And then, so was Miles. And seemingly, just when the band was getting started, they were done, and they disappeared backstage. Miles didn't get starstruck too often, but this time, he felt compelled to introduce himself. So the two music legends shared more than a few drinks, and more than a few ideas as well. The ice was broken with a mutual confession of their fandom towards one another. After that, the two joked and butted heads like old college buddies. Miles at one point had to catch his breath from laughing so hard. When Miles finally caught his breath, he asked Sly the question that's been in the back of his mind for the whole conversation. Say, what do you make from playing this damn festival anyway? He said. Sly cocked a grin. Fifty. And Miles. Miles' eyes went wide. Shit. Don't let those scumbags run you over. You deserve more than that. No. No, 50K. In Miles' eyes, they were still wide open. He was only getting 10K. They both broke into laughter again, but probably not for the same reasons. At that moment, Miles finally realized the paradigm shift that had been building inside his fiery passion for the past few years. Times were changing. Miles was sitting here talking and having a great old time with one of the world's biggest stars. Bigger than Miles and <laughs> definitely higher paid. Sly, Hendrix, Santana, all the musicians Miles was starting to love, those were now the ones making the creative leaps in music, just as Miles did in the previous decade in the glory days of jazz. But the glory days of jazz were long gone. And that, that was just it. Every bit of competition that existed for Miles within the jazz community was gone. There was nothing left for him to do. At this point, he'd already invented multiple subgenres of jazz, and Miles wanted nothing to do with the direction jazz was going. Miles didn't just want to be a part of the sharp knife of a genre that was rock and roll. He wanted to top the best. Jimmy, Sly, Santana, and no one. No one was more competitive and dead set on winning than Miles. All right, thanks for listening, everyone. Music Legends is recorded and produced by me, Willie Miller. And, uh, <laughs> I'm kind of a one-man band for the time being, and occasionally I do mess up, as we all do. So I gotta clear something up real quick. It's come to my attention that in episode 3, I mixed up the release order of Kind of Blue and Sketches of Spain. I said the sketches came before Kind of Blue. However, that isn't true. Sketches and Kind of Blue were recorded in the same year, 1959, but Sketches wasn't released until 1960. I think while writing that episode, I got mixed up because Miles Davis was just doing so much around that time. 
beginning his collaborations with Gil Evans, scoring movies, and of course, getting into all that modal stuff. So, yeah, I just wanted to make that clear now. I guess better late than never, right? Anyway, what a doozy that episode was, huh? Now, I gotta make something else clear here. Now, before starting this season, I knew there'd be some pretty messed up stuff that would come up when telling the story of Miles Davis like it did in today's episode, but in no way, shape, or form am I condoning his behavior. I'm simply trying to understand it. And around this point in his story, it starts to get seriously hard to understand. Or at least, I felt that way when writing it. Well, at least, hard to sympathize with. And what I make of it is that he was just becoming more and more dependent on the drugs he was doing. All while becoming a more cold and distant person. So I guess, I don't know, it becomes kind of a chicken and the egg kind of scenario, you know? What came first? Was he a cold and distant person all along, or was that all just a symptom of the addiction? Or both? I don't know. What do you guys think? Let me know. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear your opinion on Miles. I'd love to hear if it's changed since the beginning of the season. So you can get in touch with me on Facebook and Instagram at Music Legends Podcast or Chili Willy Sounds. All the links to my social media are going to be in the show notes. And speaking of the show notes, for those of you who want to go a little bit deeper, I did put an interesting article about the gentrification of jazz, which I think is super pertinent to this episode and why Miles Davis kind of left the mainstream jazz to focus on a more rock and roll sound. And that's all. That's all I put in the show notes for this one. That said, Happy Black History Month, y'all. I can't wait to continue exploring the story of Miles Davis with y'all in the next few episodes. Pretty much every episode from here is also a doozy, so get ready. Alright folks, I'll see you soon. Peace.